You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey everybody, I'm here today with Nader Dabit, who is a developer advocate at AWS and also a trainer and kind of an entrepreneur. Um, I've encountered Nader online, on Twitter we've interacted. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of dig into his career and and learn the things that he's done well and the things that he struggled with. So Nader, do you want to say hi and talk about uh, what your day job looks like? Yeah, sure. Uh, so thanks for having me on, Jacob. Um, my name is Nader Dabit, like he mentioned, and you know I've done quite a few different things in my career, but right now I'm working at uh, Amazon Web Services and the team that I work on is the mobile team. And the mobile team is kind of a uh, a name that doesn't really fit anymore because we do quite a bit more than mobile. So if you've ever seen some of the stuff around um, Amplify and some of the stuff we're doing with serverless, it's kind of uh, you know encompassing a lot of client technologies. We're really kind of focused a lot on uh, front-end developers, uh, front-end, front-end tooling and stuff like that. Uh, so Nader, how did you initially get started in tech? What age was that, and and kind of what what happened that got you interested in technology? So um, the first experience I really had in this in, in anything like this, I dropped out of high school actually, and I was uh, 17 years old. Got my GED and uh, went to community college. And one of the classes that they had there was uh, I think it was like HTML and CSS or something like that. It was kind of a really intro mm-hmm. web development course. So I took that. Um, there was it was like a few months long, you know, like it was one semester. And um, after that, I didn't actually touch code for another twelve or thirteen years until I was twenty nine or thirty. Um, like when I say I didn't touch code, I really you know didn't do anything significant. I may have like uh, created a couple of basic landing pages, you know, just messing mm-hmm. around and all that. But I never like looked at it as a career or anything like that. And um, I had in between, you know, that age and my later age of 29 or 30, when I got back into it, I had done quite a few things. But uh, at the time Mm -hmm. when I got back into it, I was working in a family business. Uh, My father had a clothing store in Mississippi that I was working in and uh, we wanted to get online. So like we wanted to take the merchandise that we had and try to sell it online. And we tried to uh, hire developers locally. Um, This was in you know, 2012, I guess, something around there. And Mm -hmm. uh, we just didn't have any luck. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what to look for. We didn't know what to ask for. We didn't realize how expensive it would be to get someone good. So we were kind of, you know, hiring people that weren't good and didn't know how to manage them. So I decided to kind of build something myself. And what ended up happening was I dug into WordPress. I kind of learned a little bit about CSS, PHP, and uh, HTML. I kind of already knew a little bit of that. Uh, we built a website. Um, it kind of took off really quickly. Started, you know, doing a ton of business within a few months. I think within about nine months, we were hitting like 15k a day in sales, like on average, which was, mm-hmm. you know, more than we were doing in our actual like main store. So at that point, I was kind of overwhelmed, you know, trying to manage the business. But I did also at the same time realize, kind of, you know, this might be the thing that I want to do. It seems kind of fun, and you know. There's obviously demand for it, and it's the first thing that I've actually done that I was fairly good at. So I was like, okay, let me give this a <laughs> shot, you know. Um, sure. So the next thing that kind of happened was I decided to find a job 
you know, doing web development or doing software development or doing something, you know, like along the lines of what I was doing, you know, on my own Mm -hmm. anyway. So I put together a resume by, I hired someone on online, like 500 bucks or something. It was like expensive for me at the time, but I paid them to kind of like write a resume for me. And um, Mm -hmm. they wrote this really impressive looking resume for someone that was like a college and high school dropout. And I ended Mm -hmm. up submitting it to just hundreds of companies all over the United States, mainly on the West Coast there. I was trying to just get any opportunity, any foot in the door in the the industry so I can actually, you know, learn more and and maybe see if this thing works. And I got hired um, in Los Angeles, California, and I lived in Mississippi. And I think uh, I got the job offer on like a Wednesday or a Thursday. And it wasn't even like a job. It was like a consulting gig, but I had to be on site. And I got it on a Wednesday or Thursday and they expected me to be in on Monday. Um, and in the job <laughs> application, I had actually said that I lived in LA. So <laughs> basically <laughs> got on a plane and like moved to LA with my family um, that at that point in time. I basically moved there on my own. And then my, my wife and kid, my kid at the time, um, they we, we put our house on the market while I was in LA and then they moved out there. And, uh-huh. and the rest is, I guess, kind of history. <laughs> Yeah, what was that experience like, and and how did you balance, you know, having to move while also stepping into what's essentially a new career field, um, and then family as well? Um, it was definitely stressful. It was definitely a roll, uh, rolling the dice type of situation, but it was also sometimes, um, you know, you have this 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 itch or this feeling that 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 something is like right. It's gonna, it's just gonna work out you just take a chance and and that's kind of like what happened, I guess you could say. And, uh, I did get fired actually from that job after (laughs) moving out there. And, um, the team that I was on there that I got fired from was just like ahead of their time. They were just like doing stuff that is really just kind of getting popular now. I mean, they were, they were doing stuff Mm -hmm. with node and, and single page applications and, um, building cross-platform mobile apps. They were just doing all this crazy mm-hmm. stuff. And the people that I worked with were also like very, very into going to meetups and conferences and stuff. And I never knew about any of that stuff when I was living in Mississippi. So mm-hmm. um, just being around th- those types of people for a couple of months and kind of like seeing the the pace and how smart they were and the things that they were doing kind of like showed me I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I got there. But I saw sure. these people that knew what they were doing. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just copy exactly what they're doing. And like, you know, by the time I started ramping up, I, I got fired. But I think taking that knowledge that they that I had learned there, I was able to, to then land jobs pretty fairly easily. I wouldn't say easily, but much easier than that first one. Like just having that one break sometimes just gives you the opportunity to kind of get your foot in the door and see know like what to say in the interview and then all that type of stuff. Yeah, hey, I, I had a similar experience at my like first full-time development job. I, I didn't end up getting like fired. Um, but by the end of the first year, I was, it was pretty clear that like I wasn't thriving at all. I was just kind of treading water and the company was acquired. So we lost all of our leadership and there just wasn't, there weren't any resources to like train me as a new developer. And I ended up leaving because I, I had that fear of like, this isn't going to work out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally re- I totally feel that. I'm curious. So after that job ended, what uh, what did you do? Did you stay in California? Yeah, stayed in California. Um, f- 
found another job within about a week, I think it was, and uh, worked there for a while. And then I think I think I had maybe also cycled into one other job because uh, these these contracts that I were getting were were kind of just that they were just contracts, consulting contracts, mm-hmm. like you know. Um, either you come on and, and, and you do this one thing and then we kind of like see if we need you to stay or, or maybe even you come on and we see if you're good and then you have the potential to like get hired long term. But I ended up having like pretty decent luck. And then uh, the last job that I had, the uh, owner offered me to work remotely when I decided to move back to Mississippi. So I was able to kind mm-hmm. of hold on to that job, move back to Mississippi, uh, work remotely um, for a little bit until I found out what I wanted to do next. And, um, yeah, so we, we, we moved back to Mississippi. I got, uh, you know, into the different areas in, in, in Mississippi where, where you could kind of like, you know, maybe see what's available out there, out there. So I applied for a few jobs and stuff and I found another opportunity and I quit uh, my consulting contract from California and then I took, took a job. And then I took a couple of other jobs in Mississippi, like, um, over the course of the next few years. I worked with a company called Seaspire, which is kind of a mobile phone type of company like Verizon, but mm-hmm. not, not nearly as big. Um, I worked with a startup called School Status, actually. That was kind of the last job I had before I kind of felt like my career started really progressing. And at School Status, it was just an amazing CEO, an amazing boss. Everyone there was like really, really great. And I learned more there probably than than anywhere else other than my first job and they were actually using really bleeding edge tech also at the time so we we picked up react native about a month or two after it was open sourced and we started building a real app with it hmm. so um do, you, you know with that experience i was kind of one of the first people i guess in the united states maybe or in the world to like we we shipped a react native app and mm-hmm. um and, and in the really early days so I think it was a huge opportunity that they gave me to do that because after that I became kind of specialized in React Native and I had a lot of doors open for me after that. You mentioned it at Cspire and before that maybe you were working mostly on like websites but consulting in general. What when did you first start working on mobile and what was kind of the indication that that's what you wanted to specialize in? Um, I really first started working in mobile in my very first job back in California, the one that I mentioned that I'd kind of gotten let go from. And uh, they were using, um, they were doing Cordova development and they were kind of writing, you know, JavaScript and they were porting it to, you know, Android and and iOS. So at that, you know, but but at the same time, I had always really been interested in building apps. But um, every time I looked into Java and Objective-C, I just kind of like, I didn't know how to program and, and just kind of looking at the, not only the programming languages, but all of the different environments and all the stuff that goes along with building native apps was uh, too much for me. So I was never, never able to do it. But uh, when you're working mm-hmm. with Cordova or you're working with uh, Ionic or you're working with React Native or Flutter even these days, you know, it's, a, it's just an easier entry point in my opinion. So um, I, but I'd always been interested in it. I, I used to do jQuery mobile. Um, I did uh, Ionic. I did React Native. You know, that, those are kind of the three that I did a lot of uh, in Cordova. But I guess Cordova kind of in Ionic are similar. Everyone starts off as a generalist and generally takes whatever you know type of job they can get into. But it's interesting when people like pick a thing and say, that's the thing that I'm going to get good at. And then they build a career on that skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's... Um, 
a lot of evidence in, in my in my experience and in my opinion, just talking to people. And of course, there's a million ways to become successful, right? But there's a lot of evidence out there that says if you kind of specialize in something and you become really, really good at one thing, that you will have, you know, more doors open for you. You'll have more opportunities sometimes because, you know, when you're when you're a generalist, there it's hard to kind of stand out unless you just you're just a very remarkable person. But if you're a specialist, you don't have to be that remarkable, in my opinion. You can kind of stand out without having to really work as hard because all mm-hmm. you're doing is focusing on, you know, a very small subset of, of things that everyone else probably knows, but you know way better. So when someone is actually going to then look into, you know, finding someone that does that exact thing, you might have of like 10% or 5% or even 1% of people looking for that thing. But when they do look for it, you're going to be one of the only people that they actually want because you're going to like, look like you've been, you know, you've done everything around this and it's going to be much easier to make that um, sale to that person. Because if there's like 10 people and, and they want, you know, someone that does X and you're, only thing that you've been focusing on for the last two or three years is X. They're going to take you over the person that's doing X, Y, Z and all these other things, right? At least that's mm-hmm. been, been my experience. Uh, I hesitate to use the word mentor because it implies like a formal relationship with another person. But I have this, this person that I consider a mentor. And one of the things he told me really early on was that the most valuable people in any organization exist at the intersection of two skills. It could be like specializing, but it's sort of like specializing in more than one thing Mm -hmm. and finding like a synthesis there. And so I feel like for you, just from my uh, vague knowledge of you, like reading some of your articles and and hearing a talk here and there, uh, for you, that's mobile development, but also AWS. Yeah, that's been that's been what I've been doing lately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when did you come into the AWS scene and like, has that affected how you view yourself as a React Native specialist? Yeah, that's. That's an interesting uh, question. Like, I think I started with AWS. The first time I ever used AWS was probably at the end of 2017. And then I got hired mm-hmm. there in January of 2018. So I've had only been using AWS for a couple of months at the most when I got hired there. So I was kind of a, a novice and a newbie when, when they hired me. But um, like... <laughs> So yeah, this that whole this whole this whole you know AWS serverless cloud computing thing is is really really fascinating to me, and I feel really excited about like some of the stuff that's going on there. And that's you know that's one of the reasons I did join there when I first started kind of digging into it. But so the team that I work on now, um, one of the engineers, his name is Richard Threlkeld, and he's kind of the person mm-hmm. that is the thought leader, I guess you could say, behind Amplify, behind AppSync, and the, a lot of the stuff that we're working on. We connected on uh, GitHub or Twitter or something at the end of 2017, and they were kind of building out the first prototypes of Amplify React Native. And um, I was able to kind of help them build out some stuff around that, um, submitted some pull requests, helped them with an example app. And um, during that experience, I was like kind of thinking this stuff was like really cool. You know, I was like, oh, this is cool, but I'm doing consulting and I'm making like good money. Like I probably would Mm -hmm. never like, you know, consider, you know, doing this full time, but, but it is a cool thing to know. Maybe I'll like dig into it and, and whatever. But, um, after, um, talking to them a couple of times, they asked me if I'd be interested in kind of working on their team. And, you know, I'd never worked with a big company like that before. I had worked with some, you know, 
fairly medium-sized companies. Actually, just one company, I guess that would even be that in that realm. That would be Seaspire, but they're kind of a local company. I've never been, you know, had the opportunity really to work with someone like Facebook or Google or any of those big companies. So, sure. So when they offered me that, I was like, okay, let me let me look into this. So I ended up going through the interviews, talked, went to Seattle and talked to and met a lot of the team, and I was kind of impressed by the vision that they had. And um, after really sitting down and hanging out with Richard one night, we kind of talked about some of the ideas that they had. And, you know, the thing that always limited me in my career was the ability to actually build something that scales and kind of understand how to build out the entire back ends because I was focusing mainly on like front end and mobile development. Like I could build a mobile app, but I would have to hook into someone else's APIs. You know, I could build a mobile app, but I would have to hook into someone else's authentication service all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But kind of their vision was to enable people like me or to enable people that were just front-end developers in general to be able to kind of use their existing skill set, but be able to build on the same infrastructure that companies like Netflix and Airbnb and all these big companies are using. And like, to me, that was a really compelling, you know, idea. I'm like, wow, this is, that's exactly what I want. Like I understand how to build front ends, but I never thought I would ever be able to build something like that that's to that scale. But when you start looking at the way that um, AWS and Azure and, and even GCP, you know, some of these services are, are built, especially the ones that kind of fall into this quote unquote serverless space, that uh, mm -hmm. they actually, they're built so you can just kind of create a service and then it'll scale for you and you don't have to actually deal with like having to scale all that stuff yourself. You don't have to deal with managing your servers, patching, updating, all that stuff. But also, you know, there's that aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is actually being able to kind of iterate and create things quickly and kind of understand how to um, test things out and, and understand how to actually do the stuff that I thought was like impossible to do, in my opinion. You know, like how do you create a, an authentication service and kind of then inter integrate that authentication service with an API and, and deal with permissions and deal with authorization and deal with, um, you know, things like security around um, if you have like a DDoS attack or any, any, any of that stuff, you know. But um, a lot of the stuff that, that our team is doing is kind of abstracting away a lot of the, the things that made it hard to build on the cloud. And we're kind of, you know, focusing on just improving the developer experience in general. But when we do that, we end up getting a lot of front-end developers that are like looking at this and they're saying, wow, this is actually something that's approachable for me. So like a huge increase of developers that we've had over the last couple of years have been traditionally front-end developers because mm -hmm. AWS is just typically known as a back-end company. Like if you're, if you're on AWS and you're like an engineer, you're typically a back-end developer, but we're getting a huge influx of like front-end developers um, and the reason is, it's because it's kind of like the first time they've ever been able to build something at scale. And, and most of the time it's really cheap or it's free even for them to kind of do all this stuff. Because when you're dealing with like these, these again, quote unquote, like you would call them serverless services, you know, outside of the scope of functions as a service or Lambda, we're talking about other things that kind of maybe fall into the same category, like as a service. You don't really pay for mm -hmm. those until you actually hit scale. So you can build sure. an app that has authentication using a managed authentication service, but you're not going to have to pay until you hit 50,000 users. So you can actually build all this stuff and it's free. So it's like, 
to me, it's like all the, all the different things kind of fit together. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is awesome. And uh, I want to learn this. So what better way to learn it than to be on the team that is actually building it. So I'm, 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 I'm there for a multitude of reasons, but one of the main reasons I'm there is just to learn how to do all this stuff. And then in the future, you know, maybe I'll stay here, but maybe I'll actually go back into consulting. I had really, really good luck in consulting. And as a front end developer, like I was kind of maxing out my hourly rate, but I know people that are doing cloud consulting that are charging up to a thousand dollars an hour. And to me, like, you know, I want to make a lot of money, you know, so that seems pretty cool to me. So <laughs> like, maybe I'll get into that one day. But uh, I, I wanted to ask one thing that you said early on, you mentioned about, you know, coming on to work at AWS, that you're, you're in Mississippi and you haven't had a chance to work for a lot of these big tech companies and, and like those opportunities aren't present. So um, I'm actually all in Arkansas. So I'm also in like not a tech hub. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. We're probably in a very similar, you know, type of community. Yeah. And I, I was curious how you felt that had affected your career growth and like the trajectory that you've been on, or if you feel like it hasn't been as important. Um, I'm sure it's affected it like slightly, but I mean, honestly, you know, people that meet me sometimes are just blown away that I'm from Mississippi because I've had such a good, uh, good, ex- you know, I've, I've had such a successful career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had to like literally, I mean, go out of my way to, to, to actually do a lot of the stuff that people living in bigger cities could probably just do organically. Um, and, and, and also the fact that I have, you know, I was raised by a wealthy family. Um, uh, I look white, you know, I'm like a privileged person. <laughs> That's probably affected a, a lot also. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's all types of things that kind of go into it, but for me, um, I think the second that, uh, experienced the first day at work in LA, I like walked in and I'm in this cool ass startup. Uh, everyone's mm-hmm. like chilling, like wearing flip-flops. <laughs> We're like close to like the mountains and like our boss like takes us out to lunch and like we have snacks. I mean, I was just like in love with the whole industry. Mm-hmm. I think at that point I was like figured I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make it in this industry just because it's been I've had such shitty experiences in almost every other job that I had. This was just like a dream. So like, you know, once you kind of have that fire lit under you, I think you kind of do whatever you can possibly do to make it work. So whether I think a lot of people might not see the the same opportunities depending on where they live, because they, because I was living in Mississippi, I didn't see all this stuff until I kind of like went there and kind of, and was there with those people. But another thing is, you know, you, uh, like I said, I, I am a little bit, you know, privileged or whatever. So I was able to kind of, I had uh, a good job. So I would actually take my own money or I would push my boss wherever I was, was and, and kind of like make them pay for me to go to conferences, <laughs> sure. you know, and like, and I, or I would pay for to go to a conference once in a while on my own. And I think going to conferences really, really helped my career just because I was able to kind of meet a lot of the big name people in the industry and, and become friends with them. And then also just like be around the type of people that go to conferences, which are typically the mm-hmm. people that are in the top percent, because why would you take your vacation time or why would you actually care to even like leave and fly somewhere to talk about the same shit you're doing at work, unless you really are passionate <laughs> about what you're doing at work. Yeah. So like no, being around those people helps a lot, you know, do, being involved in, in those events I mean, I actually, and also, you know, I started a meetup here in Mississippi because I wanted us to have what I'd seen in other places. So I started up two meetups. Um, one of them is just a regular meetup that you typically would see anywhere where we have like a meetup and we have two um, presentations every month. 
And I actually paid for that meetup out of my, my own pocket for most mm-hmm. of the time. And then uh, we had another social meetup where we would just meet and just like hang out and like have drinks or, or pizza or whatever. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, but the answer to your question, has it affected my career growth? I think no, but I don't think that would be the case for everybody. I think it just kind of depends on your circumstances. One of the things that you mentioned about going out to LA and seeing what these startups are like, you know, for all their, their flaws and warts, like the conditions people work in at those companies. And then coming back to Mississippi, where I imagine similar to Arkansas, you're surrounded by a lot of people who are in blue collar jobs and who, you know, my, I, my father-in-law, I mean, he's in his late sixties and still works probably 70 hours a week, uh, doing very difficult physical work. Those seeing that, and then seeing the conditions tech people work under, it's like, kind of want to do whatever you have to do to work in those conditions. Right. Um, like you were saying, I feel like I've had that same experience. So uh, to that point, maybe that's been something that's sort of enabled your growth and given you motivation to to grow and, and get more involved. Yeah, I think it totally has. I mean, I, it's it's really it's really interesting to see different people in the way that they are and kind of then learning about their backgrounds, like where they came from. Because, you know, when you've experienced really bad situations, you know, it kind of, I wouldn't say it's like a good thing. I would never wish that upon anybody. But if you do have that happen to you, you're going to have maybe or, or you're capable of having more appreciation for better circumstances. That doesn't mean someone that has been raised in like really extreme privilege, maybe in the California from a rich family, isn't going to empathize with with uh, the fact that that could have been them and maybe also feel that way. But there, you know, but for sure, if you come from um, an area where people are struggling to make $10 an hour, or if they get something like that, that's like a good job. And then you go mm-hmm. to California or you go to like a startup, even in, in, in Mississippi, there's, there's a couple of startups that are probably similar, you know, work environments that you might see out there, you know, these days. But when you go from, from people like that are struggling and a lot of these people even like are college educated and then you go and you see people making like a hundred K a year or 200 K a year. And they're working like four to five days a week. Um, and they like can wear whatever they want to work and they, and their problems are not the same as your problems where like the things that they complain about are things that you wish that you could complain about, you know? <laughs> and like, yeah. you know, it's very, it's just, it's just very like apparent when you, when you first, are exposed to the, to that culture and all that stuff. You're just like, wow, like this is crazy. Like I just, I, I can't imagine this is like, you know, uh, I can't believe people are living like this. And I'm sure there is like more, more levels to this in life, right? There's people that are like uh, doctors that are probably making a million bucks a year. You could look at like NBA players and like, you know, people that are born into wealth, mm-hmm. but I mean, but, but still like just still looking at the, the, the typical, like, you know, software engineer, or I would say they're in the top 5%, I don't know, maybe 1%, for sure the top 10% of the wealth, right? I mean, probably I would mm-hmm. say in the top 5%, I don't know. But yeah, so like going from like the very opposite of that to that, yeah, it's very motivating for for me. I don't know if it's that way for everyone else, but for me, it was really motivating. Yeah, it could definitely be demoralizing. And, and obviously, like it's worth saying that like Arkansas and Mississippi, United States are not the worst places to live. Um, there are uh, exactly. there are certainly places like where people who are writing software probably live that are uh, much less conducive to, to the career we have and, and much harder to be in those environments. It's all yeah, it's all relative, right? Like relative to 
California, Mississippi, and Arkansas, or I wouldn't even say to California, but relative to, you know, areas where people have, um, you know, access to, I don't know, I wouldn't say access, but there's just more education, there's less mm-hmm. poverty and stuff. Relative to that, where we live is, you know, um, it's a big change, but relative to somewhere that's kind of like a developing country, you know, Mississippi would be sure. you know, much better. So, yeah, I think it's all yeah. relative. Absolutely. Um, see, I think it's really, really cool. Um, and one question that I always like to ask, and I think this sort of uh, lends itself to that question, going from the environment that you you know grew up in and that you, you started your career in into this tech thing, going from Mississippi, uh, not working in tech to California, working in tech, um, did you feel this sensation that you know, people call imposter syndrome or something like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Imposter syndrome has like always been there and it kind of just is now starting to sometimes go ahead, go away, but it's still, it's, it's always kind of right there behind me and it comes, comes in and out of my life. I think, I think the more confidence that you build and, and the further you along in your career you go, like the less it, it comes around, but it's still there. I experienced it, especially early on um, because, you know, when you start, going to these conferences and you start interacting with these people in the community. Um, there's just assumptions made if, if you are from a place like Mississippi, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like mm-hmm. I just, like I would be teaching and, and I actually had this when I was doing training because I would, uh, I started my consulting company based on getting like a, a bunch of big training contracts. And, and I started doing training full time for like a year. And uh, I would be training someone that like went to Stanford, right? Like these people are sure. much smarter than me. And I learned that, you know, a couple of times um, I lost respect from people when they learned about my background and stuff. So mm-hmm. I learned to like not talk about that and hide that because people would just like basically, you know, treat you much differently. Not, not everyone actually, just a few people would. But just based on that, that was a really negative experience for me. So I just would go out of my way to, 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 I would actually change like almost who I was to, to try to just not have those things happen again. You know, I would like try to yeah. hide my Mississippi accent, which is kind of actually like pretty much happened, you know, over time because of those experiences. <laughs> I feel, I mean, I still have it, but it's probably not nearly as bad as like some other people here. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I mean, I would say at this point, I don't care. Like I'll talk about it, but like for a while I was really, you know, um, going out of my way to not talk about it. Yeah, I, I've had similar experiences. And the interesting thing is like coming from a really privileged background, um, I didn't grow up with a lot of wealth or anything, but I'm definitely, you know, a white, uh, you know, cisgendered straight male or whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, face a lot of the prejudice just from walking into a room that a lot of people do. But um, I did when I interviewed at, at some larger companies out West on the, on the West Coast, um, there was one particular experience where it was this group interview setting, which I really hate when they have like multiple candidates in one interview. Um, but it was a, a room of like 10 or 12 people and, and all were like fresh college graduates. And I was pretty young too. I was in my like really early 20, I was probably 20, maybe 21. Um, and I'm, I'm a college dropout. So we, we went to this room and I was the last person in line and they just asked everyone to introduce who they were, where they were from, uh, what they majored in and that kind of thing. So they go across the room and I realized by the time it gets to me that, uh, out of the 10 or 12 people in the room, um, all but but me and one other person are Duke or Cornell graduates. And most of them double majored in something really technical and intense sounding. 
Um, and then the only other person who wasn't, no, the two other people who weren't, one was uh, from UCLA and had double majored in theoretical physics and math. And then the other one was from Berkeley and was a CE student or CS student. Wow. Um, and, you know, I came last. I was like, yeah, I'm from Arkansas. I'm a college dropout. Uh, See, that had to, yeah, that had to have been kind of rough. So, and that, that was one of those instances where immediately, like, you know, the, the attitude toward me just completely shifted. Um, that company was no longer interested in me. Um, I, I assume that the recruiters that that invited me to interview and, and the early people that I interacted with knew that, but I don't think the interviewers were fully aware. Um, and like the, like the, the mood totally shifted. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, that sucks. And I think like when you, when you have stuff like that happen to you, sometimes it makes you really like, of course it's like a negative experience, but depending on how you kind of channel that, you can actually channel it to kind of maybe be like, okay, I need to be, you know, I need to excel at what I'm doing, right. To, to just even be on the same level as some of these people, or I need to like, mm -hmm. just kill myself to like, you know, to try to get to the, <laughs> the point where I can feel that way. But like, you know, that, that sucks and you shouldn't have to do that. But I mean, you know, that's kind of what I, that's what I did with, with that type of feedback. I would, I would go out of my way to try to do a million things to kind of like try to, get to where I would be viewed on the same level as those types of people. And sure. like you mentioned, like, you yeah. know, we, and, and we're still just like, you know, white males going into a room. Imagine someone, you know, that is, um, I don't know, depending from another country or something like that. Um, they're, they're a minority, whatever. They're going to automatically be looked at depending on where, who they're, who's looking at them, maybe even, um, you know, in a, in a way worse than they, they look at us. So, I mean, yeah, it's all mm -hmm. relative, you know, and um, it kind of, it kind of sucks. Yeah. And that was part of that experience for me. It was sort of like shock just because I hadn't really experienced that before. I hadn't really had the, the negative uh, perception just out of the gate like that, um, which is, you know, it's, it's eye opening, but also like one of those things where you realize that you're still pretty privileged. Um, like that doesn't happen to you on a regular basis, but it, it is like an interesting experience. And for me, like, sort of like what you were saying, it turned into this, well, I need to like represent the area I'm from well and kind of turn that perception around if I can, or at least like be a good example. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it caused me to actually be a little bit more proud of, of, you know, my background being from the South and, and try to uh, communicate to people that like, yeah, there's a perception and yeah, there's some truth to it, but there's also some really, really great people in this area and there's some really talented technologists. And like, I, I'm, I'm not totally devoid of like, technical peers in this area there's a lot of people around me that are much better at what i do than i am so like trying to communicate that and be open about that has been sort of part of my goal um as i meet people from different places and with different backgrounds and one thing i wanted to, to ask you about that maybe isn't directly related to this but we talked about it briefly um and i ask most of the guests that i interview this um but what if you could distill it down into a single trait or characteristic or a thing you've done what is it that you think makes you good at what you do i think create you know cre create things that's kind of the one thing i think that um mm -hmm. i would say that um has helped me out and you know it's kind of i think i'd read something i've seen a few different people wear this in different ways but um when you have an idea or when you want to do something, just execute on that as soon as possible. Even if it's not going to be as good as you wanted it, or it's not going to be great. 
or even if you don't finish it, at least execute and see, you know, what comes out of it and put out that thing when you're done with it into the world and just show people what you've executed on. And uh, the creating can mean creating mm-hmm. like a blog post or creating documentation, creating, you know, a GitHub repository with something you're working on or creating a project or I don't know, create anything. But when you create stuff, you're kind of like bringing something new that no one's ever seen, even if it's a variation on something that someone else has done. And I think that uh, the more that you create, the more, I don't know, for me, the more I've created, the more good luck I've had. I don't, I don't know if there's correlation there, but it seems that way. Um, I think the first big realization I had around that, and this was like with writing, was I wrote a blog post in 2016, 2017. No, it was probably like 2015, mm-hmm. 2016. I don't remember exactly when, but it was on Medium. Mm-hmm. And it was I'd never written a blog post on Medium. And I wrote a blog post around something about React Router. And I think it has like five, six, seven hundred thousand views at this point. It just it went, no, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, wow. that was, that was one of my second or third ones. It was actually around configuring Webpack or something like that. But yeah, like after that, <laughs> like that was, I mean, I may have gotten lucky by having my first blog post ever go like viral or whatever you would call that. I don't know if it was viral, but not, not, mm-hmm. not as many people were blogging at that point. I don't think anyway. So there was just less stuff out there. I think it might be harder to stand out now, but you can still do it just by doing more of it maybe. But yeah, ever since that that happened, I was, um, I've been kind of hooked to that feeling of creating stuff. Yeah, and I think that's really good advice. I think whether it's creating technical things and doing open source work or building side projects or putting things on the app store or, you know, like I make this podcast or uh, blogging. Like I, I've had a similar experience with writing on dev. Um, which for me was eye-opening to realize that like, oh, I can sort of just write down the things I think. And as long as I articulate myself well enough that someone can understand, people are mm-hmm. probably going to be interested. So as a follow-up to that, and also a question I ask everyone that I interview, and this is because there might be people who listen to this that follow you on Twitter or read your blog posts and think, wow, you know, Natter is a really smart dude. He has this all figured out. Uh, he's really good at what he does. To kind of dispel that and and help people kind of break the uh, the enchantment uh, of of hero worship, what's something that you consider yourself to be bad at? Um, well, there's so many things. It's kind of hard for me to, to kind of just say one. <laughs> but um, I mean, believe it or not, I don't really consider myself that good of a speaker. And, I, I, and that's kind of funny because that's kind of my main job right now is to go around speaking. And I feel like I have to mm-hmm. really, really work hard to, to make a talk even acceptable and not in my eyes you know and i think my first talks were just miserable like terrible um so i feel like i'm still not that good of a speaker i mean i don't feel like that i'm that i'm that good at a lot of computer sciencey stuff that most people that i feel that i talk to already know so i'll be in a conversation with someone and they'll they'll start talking about something and i just don't know what the hell they're saying because I'm, i don't understand that thing that they're <laughs> saying so a lot of the you know, things around uh, data structures, you know, a lot of the terminology around some of the computer science you know, terms that we don't really use all the time in, in, in the front-end world, maybe. Um, and I hear that a lot at AWS because most of the people that are there are computer science graduates and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of stuff around programming languages that are outside of, you know, JavaScript that I feel like it's hard for me to pick up. Every time... 
I try to pick up another programming language. I feel like I get frustrated and I just stop. So I don't really know any other languages that well other than JavaScript. Um, mm-hmm. I could keep going though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel like those are things that most people can relate to. Like I certainly can relate to them, like not having a computer science education or at least not a formal one. Uh, when I When I hear a lot of like, people naming algorithms and talking about, you know, different kinds of approaches to like, especially with like really high scale systems, which like the ones you're probably talking to people about. uh, I start to kind of get intimidated because those aren't problems that I've really had to immerse myself in. And I didn't have like the education background to just know what all the words mean. Um, So it's been a lot of like scrambling behind the scenes to learn things and and familiarize myself with things so that I, I don't feel as insecure. Uh, I'm curious how how you deal with uh, those things that you consider yourself to be bad at. Do you kind of uh, work on them or do you double down on the things that you think you're good at? So how do I go about improving the things that I'm I'm bad at? Sure, or ignoring them if that's your strategy. <laughs> I mean, there's ways, I was going to say, there's kind of ways to use some of these these weaknesses as strengths. So for me, you know, you mentioned like not understanding, you know, how to build scalable systems or, or whatever, or cloud computing. And, and I don't know exactly what you were saying, mm-hmm. but something around along those lines. Um, I'm kind of like the same way, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I really like the, the stuff that my team is doing, because, you know, we don't have to actually, you know, it's almost like we're building abstractions, just like everyone's been doing for the last 50 years. There's just new abstractions and better abstractions. So for instance, like when you're writing JavaScript, you don't have to actually understand what's going on under the hood as far as like what happens mm-hmm. when JavaScript is actually being maybe compiled down to a lower level language and and then being, you know, I don't really know exactly even how to talk about it because I don't even know. But like, you know, there's something else that's happening underneath <laughs> the, like what JavaScript sure. is doing, right? But since we're able to just write JavaScript, we don't actually have to care about that um, with with building scalable architecture, you you need to know about a, a lot of stuff, you know, but what we're building are abstractions on top of that. So mm-hmm. where you can actually kind of um, write higher level or understand higher level things that are easy to understand and quicker to, to use. And you don't mm-hmm. actually have to understand that, that low level stuff um, anymore. And it's kind of like when you think about, mm-hmm. uh, I think what people are talking about with some of the serverless, stuff and, and even some of the cloud technologies is um or really i would say more like around the newer stuff that's happening in the cloud uh so you could think of things like serverless framework or or amplify you know instead of actually mm-hmm. configuring and dealing with these resources at the at the very low level is it would almost be cons- com- compared to compute computing uh like at closer to the metal Whereas now we're like creating higher level abstractions, programming languages like JavaScript. And then the cloud, we're having higher level abstractions like Amplify and serverless frameworks. So you don't actually have to kind of orchestrate and deal with all of this low level stuff. You're able to kind of just create things and, and, and iterate and you know experiment and do all this stuff. And you're not kind of dealing with some of the low level stuff. And with serverless uh, functions, you know, they're, they're getting better and better and you're able to kind of not ever have to even deal with servers anymore. You're just, you're just having, you know, you can have different mm-hmm. runtimes. You can still run Python and Go and JavaScript. All you have to, to worry about is invoking a function. You don't actually have to worry about where that function lives. You don't have to worry about the underlying infrastructure for that function. You don't have to underline, uh, deal about patching and scaling and all that, that really hard stuff anymore. All you have to do is think about writing the code that's executing there. 
So, you know, taking the, the mm-hmm. weakness of not knowing that and trying to just find a way to still build, you know, would be a way to kind of take that and to turn it into a strength because then you're able to do everything and more that all these other people know how to do, but you're using, you know, what you know to kind of do that. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely valuable. And that's essentially what I think, uh, maybe not the skill of computer sciences, but even then I would say that uh, what we're doing as technologists, generally speaking, no matter what level you meet it at, whether that's a UX person, a UI person, or, you know, even a database person or someone that goes further down to that and is writing a compiler or a language, every step of the way, you're building abstractions to make someone else's life easier and to make them more effective, generally speaking, or more productive. Kind of want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you are working on and uh, just if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Yeah, so right now I am working on my second my second book. It's called Full Stack Serverless, and it's kind of a new you know paradigm that that I'm kind of really exploring. And I think that it's kind of been touched on in different ways before, but kind of the way that I see it is um, we're moving again, talking about all of these abstractions. So, like for me, the big abstraction that really I was really interested in as a front end developer at first was React Native because. I saw the need for something like this where you can have um, a better mobile experience, but you're still writing a single programming language and a single, uh, for the most part, a single code base with a a slight variation maybe for for native iOS, native Android. Um, But you're kind of, you know, there's a big value proposition there with React Native where you're kind of um, having less expensive developers, faster development time, and everything is all like cut in half or more. So a lot of companies were were doing React Native away from their native development because their native developers were so expensive and they had two teams. So React Native is an abstraction. I think the stuff that we're seeing in the cloud space like Netlify, like Firebase with now that they have, not that they have functions uh, with Amplify is, is another abstraction. But I think the the really cool thing is that we're seeing the convergence of front end and cloud like happen just organically, you know? And I think that to me, that's Mm -hmm. the most exciting space because you can be a front end developer using your existing skill set. You don't have to learn any new programming languages. You don't have to learn any new, you know, dealing with understanding how to deal and uh, work with servers and all this stuff. You can use your existing skill set, but build full stack applications but not in the way that you would typically think of a full stack developer because a full stack developer is typically dealing with DevOps and they're dealing with, um, you know, maintaining servers and, and creating, creating servers, right? But a, but a full stack serverless developer, a full stack cloud developer understands how to write their web app. They understand how to write JavaScript or um, whatever their, their programming languages of choice if it's not JavaScript on the back end. And they're able to then kind of build out these really crazy ideas. They're built out all of these really interesting ideas and they're able to kind of do that at scale without spending a lot of money. And yeah, so my book is kind of about that, but the, the main tech mm-hmm. I'm focusing on in my book is AWS. So if you're not interested in like AWS, there's probably other stuff out there to, to look into. So maybe look into um, maybe Netlify and Firebase, you know, because I think that's where all of these things are heading. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm working mm-hmm. on. That's that's what I'm super interested in. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Dabit3. It's D-A-B-I-T and the number three. I love to talk on there. And um, yeah, that's kind of um, the main places, place that I hang out is Twitter. 
cool. Well, thanks a ton for coming and talking with me. I feel like you had a lot of like really valuable uh, insight, especially for people like me who aren't based in you know tech hub cities. Um, but I, I really enjoyed getting to talk with you and getting to know you a little bit. Yeah, I enjoyed being on. And I've known you on Twitter for a while, so it's cool to actually meet you <laughs> in person. So I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.